Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church. And uh, hey to everyone who's tuning in online. Thanks for joining in. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, maybe you've seen me around before. I actually was a resident here uh, for three years. And uh, just what a resident does is they work alongside the pastoral team here at Grace and uh, do graduate school full time. And so uh, actually just a couple weeks ago, uh, me and my family were down in Dallas, Texas, uh, finishing up and walking at commencement. And so glad to have uh, just the master's degree uh, all the way through now and excited to be uh, the pastor of life groups here at Grace. And uh, my family is just excited to be here uh, long term. Uh, this is what we consider home. We moved here about four years ago, and uh, me and my wife, and now we have two little boys. And uh, we're just really uh, glad that we get to have deeper roots here and uh, be here long term. And so if you've been at Grace before, you've been here for a while, you're probably wondering, uh, where's Pastor Jeff? Where's Pastor Ryan? Um, they're gone. And so you got me. And if you're new to Grace, um, I do this all the time. You should have complete confidence in me. It's going to be a great weekend. <laughs> so we're in a series right now called Love Liable. And what we've been saying in the series is really how can we see the love of God through his son Jesus. And when we look at that love, how should we take it and then apply it to our everyday lives and our everyday relationships? This, this perfect love that we see in God through his son Jesus. Actually, Jesus would command us this in John 15. He would say, my command is this, that you love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so we've been coming back to this kind of command, this charge to say, Jesus saying, see my love, see the love with which I loved you. We would say that this love in him dying on the cross for us and being raised from the dead, we would say that was love to the fullest extent. Or another way we might say is that he loved us to the end. And so his death was not a mistake. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a backup plan. It was his predetermined decision to love us, that he would actively make that choice and be intentional in laying down his life uh, for you and for me. And so we look at that love and we want to understand all the facets of it and we want to understand really how does this play out in our individual relationships, right? We have all sorts of relationships. They're complex, they're messy, and they're personal. How would Jesus love that person in my life or that person or that person? And we want to begin to play that out in real time as we understand Christ's love more and more. And so this week, we're going to be diving into another aspect of that love. And so we've been in a verse uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. We jumped into it last week. It says, love always protects. Love always trusts. It always hopes and always perseveres. And so last week, Pastor Jeff talked about how love always protects. You can check that out online or you can find it on the app if you'd like. But this week, we're going to focus in on that word trust. <laughs> And so another way we might uh, understand this verse, what that word is saying is love always trusts. Love believes all things. Love never loses faith. And I got stuck with that this weekend. <laughs> it always trusts. It believes all things. It never loses faith. And so I was, I was kind of scratching my head. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem like that's going to be worth talking about. It seems like it's going to be hard to really understand how do we do that. And I think the reason it was so challenging is because of my, my own conceptions with what it means to always trust. And so I was diving into it a little bit. And what we're talking about here is, is really not this. We're not saying that we're going to navigate every relationship just kind of like with the blinders on. 
that we're going to walk into a relationship naively or, or into a situation where there's obvious danger and harm and just pretend like it's not there. That's not what we're saying when we say that love always trusts. What we're actually saying is that when love is needed, when that choice needs to be made to love someone, that I'm not going to question whether that person is deserving of my love. And that's what we see in Christ. That's what we see in Jesus in his death is trusting that even though that person may not deserve it, even, even though the faults and the weaknesses and the failures of an individual may be present, when there's a real need and there's a real opportunity to love, I'm going to trust that it's worth loving them anyway. I'm going I'm to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to choose to love them in that situation. And so I think this is also really difficult for us because trust is a risk. <laughs> I mean, trust is something that is earned. You know, love is something I give, but, but trust is something that I kind of have to begin to navigate as I'm, I'm getting to understand you. I'm going to give a little bit of myself away and see how you handle that. And if I can trust you, then I'll move a little bit closer and, and see how you handle that part of my life. And how real can I be and how much closer can I get to you without you breaking my trust? And we'll navigate that. We'll kind of tread on light water and see how much we can really be our real selves around other people. And we navigate slowly to see how they'll respond if they'll break our trust. And kind of the main way I think about this is when I was a kid, I loved riding roller coasters. I loved it at an early age, like, you know, how they have the height chart. As soon as I could get on a roller coaster, I wanted to be on it. And so uh, one time when I was a kid, we went to this amusement park called Kennywood. Um, It's not as nice as Cedar Point or Kings Island at all, um, but it's an amusement park by some measure. And I went there. I went to Kennywood. And I remember I was in line. I was like eight years old. I was so excited. New amusement park and a ride a roller coaster. And I was standing in line with my dad. And I heard some people in line kind of talking. And I overheard them say, oh yeah, I heard someone actually died on this roller coaster. (laughs) Yeah, I heard that like the bar didn't work or they stood up or something. And that's when it clicked for me as an eight-year-old that people died on roller coasters. There was like a serious risk. I just thought it was all fun. Like this has to be completely safe. There's no risk in this. I remember like finishing getting through line and getting into the seat and like did the bar click? Did it actually click? And then we're like going up and I'm like, I shouldn't be here right now. Like I, as an eight-year-old, I've made a terrible decision. And then you're like, every time you come out of the seat on every hill, you're like, this is it. I'm going to fall out. And it was, it's terrible. (laughs) Once it finally clicks for you that there's actual risk involved in this ride. And I think that sometimes, at least I, enter into relationships where I want to trust and I want to think there's no risk here. They'll never let me down. I should just be able to trust them completely and they'll never fail me. And I think that's the fault in how we navigate some of our relationships is that we want to believe that and we want to expect that but we know that people will let us down. We know that life will not go the way we expect it to. And so that's what we want to talk about this weekend is what do we do? Because we know trust has to be a part of a real relationship, that it has to exist for love to be there and for that relationship to flourish. And so what I want us to do is we've been spending a lot of time in this series kind of thinking how does this play out in my individual relationships Today, what I want us to do is think about, is there someone who I can always trust? And if there is, can I build my foundation on that? And I think it's God. I think it's the love we see 
in Jesus Christ. And I think that is the foundation that we actually want to build on because his love is never changing. And so I said it this way as I was thinking about why I think it connects is really that trusting God is what enables us to love others. Trusting God is what enables us to love others. I think that God is the, is the strongest foundation that we can build our trust on because it will never bottom out. And I think what happens is we begin to, to build our lives on, on other things or other people and trust is broken and it feels like our lives come crumbling down. And, and what we know to be true about God is the reason that it's a solid foundation to build on him is we would say this in the church, we would say this word that he's sovereign, that he's sovereign. And what that word means is that his plan and his power will never fail. That he's sovereign in all things and at all times. He is trustworthy because his plan and his power never fail. And so I can build on him and I can trust that it's gonna be a secure foundation and that other things may bottom out in my life, but that's gonna be solid and it's not gonna move. And I think what's even more securing about that is when other people let me down and I start to feel kind of lost, if I have the right foundation, then I won't be lost. I won't be lost because everything isn't coming crumbling down. Major things may be falling apart, but there's something that's true in all of it. And so we're going to talk about that today. As I was thinking about where do we really see this in the Bible, I thought about a, a specific person named Joseph. And uh, so Joseph is someone who came from literally the most dysfunctional family ever. And so if you're kind of coming from that place, you're like, this is going to be great. Let's talk about that. Dysfunctional families. Joseph, um, really, I think what's so awesome about his story is he was going to be challenged to trust God despite everyone in his life letting him down. Despite everything circumstantially that would lead him to believe something different, he would trust God. And so Joseph comes from this messed up family. He's the second youngest of 12 brothers. And so he's, he's kind of the little guy. And he's about 17 when we enter into his story. And, and Joseph's family was a nomadic family. They were shepherds. They worked in the field. They, you, they did hard work. And so the brothers would be out every day kind of doing that work. Joseph, one time, you know, he, he was kind of the younger brother. He was bringing a report back to dad. It wasn't a good report. And um, his brothers hated him for it. <laughs> he was kind of the snitch. And his dad also showed him a lot of favoritism. He made him this robe. Apparently, it was really colorful. It was awesome. His brothers hated him for that, too, because he was getting the special treatment. And so uh, one day, Joseph has this dream. And he wakes up the next day, and he tells his family about it. And basically, he's saying, hey, one day, uh, I was having this dream. We were out in the field one day, and uh, my basket kind of rose up, and all of your baskets bowed down to mine. And they're picking up on what the dream means. And they're like, oh, you're saying that you're going to be in charge, <laughs> that we're going to bow down to you. You're crazy. And they hated him even more. And so this started compounding it in his dysfunctional family. His brothers wanted to get rid of him. And so one day, Joseph came out to meet him in the fields. And they said, you know what? Let's just get rid of him. And so what they did was they took the robe off of him. They tore it up. They covered it in blood. And they sold him off as a slave and sent him away. They took the robe back to their dad and said, hey, this is what we found. He must, he must be dead. But really what had happened was he had been sold off as a slave, and he got sent to Egypt, 
and he's bound and, you know, gets to Egypt and someone ends up purchasing him as an employee, as a slave, and, and he ends up working in one of Pharaoh's officials' homes. So someone pretty high up, he ends up working there, kind of managing the household, and actually he's very successful at it. He has high integrity, he's a hard worker, everything that he does, God gives him favor in. Until one day, when a lie is told about him, and he gets falsely accused, and his boss kicks him out and sends him to prison. And even in prison, even in that moment with his inmates and his peers, he ends up helping them out. They have a dream, and he's able to interpret it, and they get out of prison, and they forget about him. And from that moment as a 17-year-old, where his brothers sell him off, and his boss, and being in prison, and his inmates forget him, is 13 years. 13 years of his life, he's just sitting in a prison, his dream not being materialized. And that's what I want us to think about today. I call it a Joseph moment. When the bottom has fallen out of everything, his brothers, his employer, his peers, everyone has abandoned him. What do you think Joseph's thinking in that moment? I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking that I would feel so betrayed I would be so angry and bitter because these are the people who ruined my life. And now I'm stuck because of all of their decisions and what they had done for me. But remember, we want to make sure that this weekend we're kind of bringing that focus on, but was, isn't God always supposed to be trustworthy? Isn't he the one who can always trust? And so we got to kind of wrestle with that because we need to ask, what was Joseph thinking about God in that moment? If he had really built his foundation on the right thing, what did Joseph do for those 13 years that enabled him to trust God? And what do we do in those moments, in those Joseph moments where everything bottoms out and nothing makes sense anymore? When it's not the results we wanted, do we trust God? When we go through trials and difficulties, do we trust God? When we don't understand why something's happening, do we, do we trust him? Like, what, do we, what are we thinking about God in that moment? And so Joseph would have had to made a purposeful decision to trust him despite what was going on around him. And so I want to I wanna take us uh, to a passage today in Romans 8. You can find it on page 917 in the Bibles, in the chairs underneath you. I want to show us what does it look like to trust God? Why can we trust him? How should we view God in that Joseph moment when everything is bottomed out? And so Romans 8 is a great passage to go to because what's basically happening in this chapter of the Bible is we're dealing with the problem of what's wrong with the world and things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we're trying to interact with God in this chapter and, and understand what he's up to. And so we're going to skip through a few different verses here. But I encourage you, read through Romans 8. Read through the whole thing. Get the whole context. We're just going to highlight a few verses today just to show really how do we trust God in a Joseph moment. And so the first verse I want us to look at is Romans 8, 28. And it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And this is what I think is difficult about trusting God is because we really can't understand the fullness 
of what he understands. We're limited in our understanding and our perspective. And so if it doesn't make sense to us, we start to doubt and be afraid that it actually makes sense to God. And I think when we don't understand something, we have to fall back on, do I actually trust this person? Do I trust their love for me? And so in that Joseph moment, if I don't trust God, I'm not going to trust him then. If I haven't already made that decision, then I'm going to be left feeling like he's abandoned me. One of the ways I think about this, just having perspective, so I I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old, his name's Silas, and uh, a -a three-and-a-half-year-old always asks the question, why? Like, it's why everything. It's like, hey, buddy, go put your shoes on. Why? Because we're going to go get in the car. Why? Because we're going to go to the store. Why? It's like, I just asked you to put your shoes on. Like, it's all you need to do is just, that's what you need to do right now. Go put the shoes on. Or he has, like, this awesome superhero shirt. It's a Flash shirt. Loves running around. He's like, Dad, I want to wear my Flash shirt again today. And I'm like, no, buddy. You've worn it five days in a row. He's like, but why? I'm like, because it smells. But why? I'm like, because I want to look like I'm taking care of you in public. (laughs) But why? Why? Like, you just, you can't understand. You're three and a half. Just some some things are just going to escape you. You just may never understand why I don't want you to wear a five-day-old shirt. (laughs) And it's difficult. And and, uh, something that I learned uh, from uh, early on as as I was navigating just kind of Silas and, and putting him to bed. We kind of came up with this routine, and we do it at nap time. We do it at bedtime. And this routine, uh, I felt like, was reinforcing as we went throughout the day, just, you have to trust me, buddy. And uh, this little routine we do, it's kind of like a question and answer thing. What I'll do is um, I'll ask him four questions, and he'll give me these answers back. I'll say uh, at, at nap time or bedtime, hey, Silas, who loves you most? And he says, Jesus. And I go, that's right. I say, Silas, who loves you next? And he goes, Mommy and Daddy. And then I say, Silas, why do I love you? And he goes, because I'm your son. And I say, how long will you be my son? And he says, always. And I look back at him and I say, you will always be my son. Because I want him to know that he can trust me. And even when his dad lets him down, there's someone he can always trust there's, whenever things do not make sense and I just, I just need him to follow through or trust me in that situation, you need to understand that who loves you most? Jesus does. And who did he put in your life? He put me there. Who loves you next? Mom and dad. Trust me, buddy. Trust my love. And that's what I feel like is happening in this verse is that we're coming to a point that where we have to say, do I really know that God wants what's best for me? Do I really believe that? Does his voice sound like, who loves you most? I do. Who loves you most? It's me. Who wants what's best for you? I do. I think this is one of the first ways that we learn that we have to trust God is we have to believe his love. We have to believe that he does want what's best for us. I would say it this way, that what we have to do is remember that God is working in the background. We would love to think that we kind of have everything under control and that the scope of what we see is everything that's happening, but really God's up to much more than we can sometimes comprehend. I think this is what Joseph had to wrestle with when he tells his brothers this dream, and instead what they do is they fake his death and sell him off. 
I feel like what Joseph had to grapple with in that moment is, okay, God sees me. God sees more than I see. God sees what, what this is for. God knows. I know that he can do something with this. This, is, this isn't the end. This doesn't mean his purpose isn't being accomplished. I think that would have been something that Joseph had to settle in his mind. Another way that, as we keep walking through Romans 8, that we see that trust is going to show up is, is here in verses 31 through 33. It says that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. What I think is so significant about this actually is that he did not spare his own son for us. That the reason we can trust God is that he spared no cost in getting us. That the most costly thing he could offer, the life of his son, he's already given. And so when we think about all the other things that we determine as good and best in our life, why would he think that as less costly as those things are compared to his son, that he wouldn't give them to us? If he can already pay that price, why would anything else be off limits? It's not. And so we have to come to, to grips with that, that God is the one who's chosen me, that he's justified me, that when he gives his son over, he brings me into being a part of the family. And he's saying, you're like my son. I view you the same way. I love you the same way. You come right here and you're close to me. You're chosen by me. You're in my family. I justify you. It doesn't matter what your accusers say. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what you think keeps you back from my love. You are here now. I've chosen you. I've justified you. You're mine. It's possessive. It's this idea that he wants us. That it's assuring. That it's trustworthy. That the relationship doesn't change even with the accusers. I've, I've talked about some, some people in my life group about this. And just as we think about our little kids, and, and we'll just talk about how there's nothing that our kids could do that would make us stop loving them. Because they're our kids. Why do I love you? Because I'm your son. Because I'm your child. And so I would word it this way. I would say that God comes through for his children. God comes through for his children He's already come through in the greatest need in your life. Why would he not come through for the other things? That he actually hears the needs and he's saying, you are valuable to me. Don't let the things that are going on around you make you doubt the fact that you are valuable to me. Don't let what other people say or what's stained in your past keep you from seeing who I said you are. God comes through for us. He hears us. He knows our needs. He's not distant even though the circumstances and the people in our life may let us down, it may not go the way we expect, we can trust as a follower of Christ that he will come through for us. That doesn't mean it's always going to work out. That doesn't mean we'll always get everything we want. Sometimes we're going to have to learn what it means to trust God and learn what he determined as best, not what we initially thought. That's challenging. That's a huge moment of surrender. But if I know that he's going to come through for me, then it makes it so much easier. I'm actually expectant. I'm willing. I'm waiting for what he's going to show me. 
I think this is what Joseph had to do when he was falsely accused, when he was working for his boss in, in Pharaoh's official's household, and, and he's lied about, and he gets sent to prison for 13 years. I don't know how you don't become bitter from that. But God, hear, God hears him. You're right here, Joseph. I know everyone else has abandoned you, but you're right here. I know your name. You're who I say you are. I know that was a lie. I know it was a false accusation. I hear. I'm the justifier. I justify you. A third thing I think we see in Romans, as you kind of finish throughout the end of the chapter, you see this, that for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're getting to this end of the chapter and it's saying, really asking the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything take this away from me? And he's, and, and he's convinced that nothing, nothing he can think of can really separate him from God's love. And that's what I, I think that Joseph was convinced of. And, I, and I'm not always convinced of that. I'm not always convinced. I feel like there are things that do separate me from God's love. It feels that way. It, it feels as if you, if you loved me, you would show up. You would show up in the way I expected you to show up. And so I doubt and I wrestle with it. And I, and I lack the conviction I was talking with a friend about this just because we talk a lot about how, how do we trust? We both kind of have trust issues and figuring out how does this play out even in our families and, and, and just in life. And so we were texting. I was sending him the, these verses. And this is what he sent me back. He said, you know what? Through the rough times that we all go through, he says we usually end up stopping praying and we stop having faith. And he even said this, he says, I feel like I'm kind of being bipolar with God sometimes. I'm begging him to help me in one minute. And when I don't get the immediate results, I tend to get angry with him. And he says, so my next prayer is, do you even exist? Do you even love me? Where are you? Hello, can you hear me? And he says, this is when the devil overcomes your thoughts and makes you feel unloved and unworthy, even though God's love is unconditional for me. And that's what it feels like. We feel like I want to trust you, but everything's leading me to believe that I can't. And things start to get stuck in your head. And you start to be unconvinced that he actually will always love you. Who loves you most? Why do I love you? How long will you be my, my child? Always. I will always love you. I think what we end up doing is we end up imposing the, the real experiences that we have with people, <laughs> and we think God must be like that. Like, if they're going to let me down, then God must be the one who's going to let me down too. I, you know, everyone else has already abandoned me. God is probably going to abandon me too, because that's what's already happened in my life. Everything's bottoming out, and no foundation that I've built is actually coming through for me. God's probably going to do the same thing. And God's saying, I'm not like other people. My love is perfect. I am always trustworthy. I am a secure foundation for you to build on. And I will never bottom out. The way I would say this is that God 
will not abandon us. God will not abandon us. I think this is what Joseph had to come to a conclusion with, that God actually loved him and that he wasn't going anywhere. And that, and that might be the only thing you need this weekend is just for you to hear that God like loves you, that he loves you ju- like just the way you are. You don't have to be on stage. You don't have to go get a fancy degree or a fancy title, that he, he just loves you in your current condition, and he loves you and wants you to be a part of his family and justify you and change you and redeem you and make you his own. And maybe that's just, that's not what God sounds like to you, but I'm here to tell you he does. I want, I want to convince you of that, that his love is unconditional, it's real, and he wants you. I think this is what Joseph already settled in his mind when he's sitting in prison for 13 years, that God cares about him that he's not abandoned, that he may be alone and in the lowest point of his life, but God cares. God cares. He loves me. I think that these, all, all these things that we found in Romans 8 would have been some sort of foundation that Joseph kind of had to build on as everyone began to bottom out and let him down. But what's awesome about Joseph's story is we get to see the result of what happened when he trusted God. And so what ends up happening is, is 13 years later, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream, and it doesn't make any sense, and he's asking for counsel about it, and no one understands what the dream means. And one of Joseph's former inmates remembers, uh, hey, Joseph can interpret dreams. So they yank him out of prison and bring him to Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh says, this is my dream. What does it mean? Big moment. And Joseph says, It's not by my wisdom that I'm going to interpret this dream for you. It's by God's wisdom. And he tells them what the dream means. And the dream's actually a warning. It's a warning for Pharaoh. It's a warning for the country that a famine is coming. And so Joseph is saying there's going to be this many years where there's there's good crop in the land, and then there's going to be this many years where there's famine. And he starts to kind of develop a plan. He's like, what you should probably do in these years when there's good fruit is do this and make storehouses, and then for this you should probably sell and distribute at this point. And Pharaoh is just blown away that this prisoner came out of nowhere to interpret his dream and actually have a plan. And so he puts him in charge of it. <laughs> he says, I, he's so impressed. He's like, I want you to be in charge of this. He's the famine relief project manager. And uh, he's second in command. And it's, it actually plays out that way. It's crazy. It comes true. Joseph's plan works out for those few years where they're storing up extra food and the famine really hits and everyone's in need and they're prepared for it. And he's able to feed the whole nation because of the foresight that God had prepared in bringing him to that moment. And it's incredible. But you know who ends up being in need in that moment? It's payback time. You ready? His brothers. So his brothers get affected by the famine, and they hear there's food in Egypt. And so they make their way over to Egypt, and who do they find is in charge of the whole gig but their younger brother, who they sold off. It's payback time. This this is where, like, whatever revenge you've ever wanted to enact, like, you have all the power, all the resources and authority in the world to, like, make it happen on your older brothers. But he doesn't do it. This is where I think Joseph, trusting God, enabled him to love others. 
because he expected the people in his life to bottom out. He didn't build his foundation on that. He built his foundation on the right thing that when it came to the moment of need for his brothers, for the country that abandoned him, he trusted God and he loved them anyway, despite the past, despite the failures. He was able to actually practically love them and meet that need. At the end of the story, when Joseph is with his brothers, he ends up saying this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see what God did through Joseph when he trusted him? He didn't just make Joseph's life better, but it was the saving of many lives, a whole country, a whole family. It's literally incredible that Joseph couldn't see beyond himself, but that when love always trusts, this is what it looks like. I'm going to trust God, and I'm going to choose to love anyway. Despite what others do, despite how others let me down, I'm going to build my foundation on this and be prepared to love in whatever way you need me to love. It's amazing. Joseph is an incredible example of this. It's an incredible example of how God's power and his plan can't be stopped. If God wants to accomplish something, that dream that he gave Joseph, he's gonna accomplish it. It doesn't matter if he's in prison. He'll bring him right up to the top if he needs to. And he did. I think, too, what's hard about it is we think of adversity as keeping us from God's love, when really I think that adversity and trials and difficulty, the, the more of that we experience in life, I would actually venture to believe that God's doing something bigger than maybe you initially thought. And instead of that adversity and that pain keeping you from trusting him and escaping you from his love, what if you saw it in a greater measure? It'd be amazing. Be expectant to be waiting. What is God gonna do now? And so as trust in God deepens and as I build my foundation more firmly on him and other things let me down, that may be the best thing that could happen in your life because now you're gonna be fixed on him and now that thing over there, you're not gonna build your foundation on it anymore. You're still gonna love those people. They're still gonna be a part of your life, but you're gonna build your foundation on the right thing and it's gonna get stronger and it's gonna get deeper and when you realize that God is the most present trustworthy person in your life, it's going to free you to love other people. It's going to free you in a way that you haven't been before. And I think this is hard because Joseph's story is kind of tied up in a nice little bow for me to present. And most of our stories aren't that way. We don't have a Genesis 50, 20 moments where it all makes sense. There's still some open ends in our story. And we don't understand why. And it seems like everything in our life isn't working out the way it did in Joseph's life. I wanted to share with you guys a story this weekend um, because I thought it'd be important for us to talk about today. Kind of a way that we saw that in our family recently this last year. And uh, what it was was my mother-in-law, um, she has had a, a really long battle with cancer. She actually has had it for almost 15 years, and um, it's a slow-growing cancer. They've been able to remove it by surgery um, before, and, and um, that kind of has kept it at bay. And actually, <clears throat> when I married into the family, um, she was cancer-free. She was cancer-free for about five years, and then about 15 months ago, um, it came back. And uh, it came back differently, and uh, it was a lot more aggressive, and so they tried a surgery, and they tried a surgery, 
and they couldn't do any more surgeries, so they were trying chemo, and they were trying chemo. And then um, uh, one day we got a call in February uh, that she was in the hospital, and so we went up to visit. We were visiting like every six, six weeks or so at that, at that time last year. And so we went up again, and we were there in the hospital when uh, the bottom fell out. And um, it, it was that Joseph moment. And they said, there's nothing left we can do. They, they said, that we, we can't do any more surgeries, we can't do any more chemo, there's no other options. And uh, so they, they uh, moved her to in-home hospice. My wife stayed out there for uh, about four weeks and uh, saw her through until she passed away and, and went to be with the Lord. And um, my mother-in-law taught us something throughout those 15 months that I want to share with you. And what it was, um, she was talking to us about it. She kind of went through a dark season when, when stuff wasn't working the way she expected it to work, that it had in the past. And even just spiritually, she felt, she felt like the things and the rhythms in her life weren't really uh, <laughs> helping her the same way that they had been in the past. And she uh, honestly was expressing that. She's, I didn't know what to say. I didn't really know what to pray. And so she came up with, with these three things. And uh, she taught them to us as, as she would be going through chemo or FaceTiming or even in her Facebook posts. And uh, she would just pray this over and over and over again. When she had no other words, when it didn't seem like things made sense, she came up with this and, and she taught it to us. She would say, God sees, God hears, God cares. God sees, God hears, God cares. She'd go in for another surgery, God sees, God hears, God cares. She'd have pain, God sees, God hears, God cares. She'd try a round of chemo, God sees, God hears, God cares. She'd have to do another round of chemo, God sees, God hears, God cares. She'd talk with her grandchildren about it, God sees, God hears, God cares. She'd teach it in her church, God sees, God hears, God cares. And in the moment where you think everything else is falling apart, you see what breaks through the suffering, a strong foundation of a woman who had built her trust on God and the one thing that was left standing was that. God sees, God hears, God cares. And my father-in-law, um, um, we wear these bracelets. We got engraved on them, God sees, God hears, God cares. And the girls have a, a daintier one. <laughs> the guys have these leather ones. It says, God sees, God hears, God cares. And we wore them all throughout the cancer battle. And my father-in-law still wears his. And uh, I was talking with him on the phone because I, um, I wanted to know what he thought about me talking about it this weekend. And he, he was, he's like, that would be so great, Josh. That would be so great if you shared about mom. And he's like, I still wear that bracelet to, to, honor, your, to honor your mother-in-law, to honor your mom. But I also wear it to share her story because that's a story worth sharing. And, and you... You don't even know all the rest of her life, but that alone <laughs> is such an awesome thing to share. That in the moment where you expect everything else to fall apart and there to be nothing left, that that rings true. God sees, God hears, God cares. And I think some of us maybe walked in this weekend, and that's why people in our life are getting hurt is because we don't really have a problem with the fact that they let us down. We have a problem with the fact that we think God is letting us down. 
And I think we need to deal with that. And maybe you've never trusted God before in that way, and, and this is, is what you need this weekend. I want to invite you into that, that God loves you, he sees you, he hears you, he cares about you. And, and maybe you're a Christ follower already, and, and this is something that you have to keep reminding yourself of, right? That doesn't go away. You don't just trust once. There's this sense of I have to remember as things begin to fall apart, as I strengthen that foundation, I would challenge us to make this our prayer this weekend. God sees, God hears, God cares. I would challenge to see how Jesus did this for us by dying on the cross, right? These people don't love me. They want to kill me. God, is your plan true? I'll trust you. I'll die for them. Even when we doubt, he is faithful. God sees, God hears, God cares. Who loves you most? Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. Right? He loves you because you're his child. He'll always love you. It's never going to change. You're right here. And if you're not here, come in. It's an invitation this weekend. So I want to pray that for you. And uh, the band's going to come out, and we'll close this out. Jesus, oh, man, we want to trust you. <laughs> I mean, you even hear, hear the voices. There's, there's an urgency and an eagerness to trust you. God, help us when there's unbelief, when there's doubt, when it fades, when you seem distant. God, we are just so prone to see only what we can see, God. So help us. Help us to trust what we know to be true about you, God. We wrestle with that why question, God. Why is it happening? Why did this happen? But God, would you help us not to get stuck on that? Would you help us to, to press through and see all the reasons you are trustworthy? And would you allow us just to walk through trial and through difficulty and through doubt, building a firm foundation on you, trusting you, your love is good. God, help us not to see the moments when life bottoms out as times where we can't trust you, but as the moments where we need to trust you the most. And God, if all we have in us this weekend is to pray, God sees, God hears, God cares, I pray that we do that. I pray we do that in the worship. If we can't even sing, if we don't even know where to start, just help us there, God. You see, you hear, and you care. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.